This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Welcome, everybody. On Monday, my colleague Hester Gelber offered an overview of Caroline Walker Bynum's career honors and publications, and so in the great medieval trope of occupatio, I won't bother to detail her tremendous achievements in her years at Harvard, Columbia, and the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where she is now professor of European medieval history. Thanks to that earlier introduction, I don't need to list her 10 prize-winning books and many articles, nor need I enumerate her multiple awards or honorary fellowships with the American Philosophical Society, the Medieval Academy of America, or the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, not to mention the many teaching awards with which she's been recognized, although those who have attended Monday's talk and Tuesday's seminars wouldn't be surprised to learn of them if I told them. Which frees me to speak more broadly about Professor Bynum's scholarly contributions and immense impact, both inside and outside the academy. When her landmark book, Jesus as Mother, appeared in 1982, it instantly changed the academic landscape with its insistence on understanding medieval sources in all their uniqueness and discomforting strangeness, like the medieval theme of Mother Jesus, which still thrills and shocks readers and students today. Speaking as one who at that moment was planning to devote her scholarly career to the 19th century novel, I remember how that book convinced me and many of us that the most exciting work was happening in medieval studies. And in the intervening period, Professor Bynum has won more converts to the field and affirmed the good sense of those already ensconced in it. I'm moved by the breadth of the audiences she's attracted so far to, at Stanford to remark on the great achievement of her work in cutting across the divides between fields and disciplines, town and gown. Within the Academy, Bynum's publications are as big news to literary scholars as they are to historians, I think because they eschew the pitfalls of cross-disciplinary scholarship in both fields claiming neither that all history is merely text nor that all texts are merely historical, but focusing with respectful attentiveness on the primary sources themselves, whether these are the narratives of medieval saints, the records of women's religious practices, or the material traces of long-distant events that we can only partly recover or understand. In her handling, such sources partake equally of the historical, the religious, the textual, and the artistic. Because they were made and used in a pre-disciplinary moment, they challenge us to understand them in truly cross-disciplinary ways that Bynum's work exemplifies. In Holy Feast and Holy Fast of 1987, Bynum sets out a scholarly method and approach to the deep past that would become her hallmark, and I quote, My commitment, vision, and method are historical, she writes. I intend to reveal the past in its strangeness as well as its familiarity. While aiming to show that medieval religious behaviors and their contexts were, as she says, very different from our own, she also insists that if readers leave this book simply condemning the past as peculiar, I shall have failed. Bynum scholarship allows us to see even the most bizarre medieval practices not with revulsion, but with understanding, and even in a term that she offers as a model for scholars with wonder. 
In 1997, when she was the president of the American Historical Association, Bynum calls for a return of wonder in its medieval sense as admiratio. Such admiring wonder attempts to apprehend without appropriating its object. It arises for an appreciation for the uniqueness of the other without attempting to erase its otherness. She concludes, and I quote, Surely our job as teachers is to puzzle, confuse, and amaze. We must rear a new generation of students who will gaze in wonder at texts and artifacts, quick to puzzle over a translation, slow to project or to appropriate, quick to assume there is a significance, slow to generalize about it. Not only as scholars, then, but also as teachers, we must astonish and be astonished. Let us prepare, then, to be astonished as we welcome again Caroline Walker Bynum for her second lecture, Holy Pieces, Attitudes Toward Parts and Holes in Late Medieval Devotion. Thank you, Jennifer, as I thanked uh, Hester on Monday. Those are lovely introductions and uh, just make me hope I can live up to them. Thank you. It's been lovely to be here, by the way. I've had uh, three wonderful days, so I thank you all for, thank you all for that. In my lecture on Monday, I made the argument that the period from the 13th to the 16th century in Western Europe saw an increase in what I called miracles of material transformation. This increase of occasions on which holy matter erupted with blood, tears, and other signs of animation was, of course, predicated on the proliferation of devotional objects themselves, relics, images, contact relics, miracle hosts, etc. The tendency for holy matter to come alive was both a problem and an opportunity for theologians, preachers, and ordinary worshipers. We saw this reflected in the theories of theologians and natural philosophers and in the politics of cults and pilgrimages. But transformation miracles were a threat at a more metaphysical level as well. For matter is, by definition, locatable, temporal, changeable. The Christian God is, by definition, immutable and transcendent. Yet the Christian God is understood to redeem not merely to transcend the material. Hence, corruptible matter must be impossibly, inconceivably, paradoxically capable of incorruption. By definition, partible, matter must be capable of eternal wholeness. In this lecture, I wish simply to explore one consequence of this paradox. Christianity's insistence on material fragmentation as a way of conveying and distributing the holy while embedding this insistence in the idea of concomitance, the idea that part is whole. To explore this improbable conception, I shall do three things. First, I describe in greater detail the emergence and the development of the cult of holy matter and the way in which the anxieties attendant upon it, especially anxieties about decay, are reflected in theology and in reliquaries. Then I look in some detail at five-wound piety as an example of late medieval devotional practice in which part is understood as whole. Finally, I consider briefly the technical theological articulation of such understanding, not as an explanation for medieval attitudes, 
but as an expression in the theories of intellectuals of what I argued to be a far more pervasive concern. From the days of the early church, relics raised the problem of the material. In the first Western controversy concerning them, to which we have detailed access, the charge against relic venerators was that they revere not just dead or inert stuff, but stuff that, because dead, was preeminently friable, mutable, corruptible, and polluting. Defending relics against the charge of one vigilantius that holy cadavers are merely and permanently vile dust, Jerome wrote in 404, quote, Are bishops all to be adjudged sacrilegious, even idiotic, when they carry a vile object and dissolved ashes in vessels of gold? If the lamb, that is Christ, is everywhere, those who are with the lamb, that is the saints, should be believed to be everywhere. When the devil and demons go about all over the earth, how can martyrs, after the pouring out of their blood, be left waiting, shut up under the altar? The said saints are not called dead, but sleeping. We honor the relics of the martyrs, that we may honor him whose martyrs they are. Are the relics of Peter and Paul unclean? Is the body of Moses unclean, that body which, according to Hebrew truth, was buried by the Lord himself? Somebody asked about this on Monday. If the bones of the holy pollute what they touch, how did the dead Elias raise a dead man? Unquote. Jerome here defends the saints as non-polluting because non-decaying. They are alive and without spatial location or incarceration. Although their bodies are dust and ashes, the saints themselves are not dead but sleeping. Jerome's defense adumbrates the later argument, which I talked about on Monday, that relics should be honored, not adored, and honored because of the creator whose glory they reflect. But he also protests against what he understands to be older Hebrew ideas of corpse pollution by refusing to associate the saints, whatever their remains may indicate visually, with dissolution or decay. Although he may seem to imply that the saints are souls in heaven, not remains incarcerated in earthly altars and tombs, he also suggests that their bodies are glorious, not vile, as certain critics claim. Holy bodies are worthy of reverencing in golden vessels and powerful enough in themselves to raise the dead. Victricius of Rouen, in a well-known text written just eight years before Jerome's, went further. Victricius argued that holiness makes the bodies of the saints, in some sense, already glorified, lifted to the immutability and impartability of heaven. Relics are jewels, whole and hard. The healings they perform cannot drain them any more than shining dims the sun. Quote, Let no one, deceived by vulgar error, think that the truth of the whole of their bodily passion is not contained in these fragments. We proclaim with all our faith and authority that there is nothing in these relics that is not complete. The passion of the saints is the imitation of Christ, and Christ is God. Therefore, no division is to be inserted in fullness, but in that division which is visible to the eye, the truth of the whole is to be adored. I touch remnants, but I affirm that in these relics perfect grace and virtue are contained. He who lives he who cures lives. He who lives is present in his relics. It is toward these jewels that we should set the sails of our souls. 
There is nothing fragile in them, nothing that decreases, nothing that can feel the passage of time. The blood which the fire of the Holy Spirit still seals in their bodies and in these relics shows that they are extraordinary signs of eternity, unquote. Having received a shipment of holy body parts from the Bishop of Milan, Victricius was worried that by accepting such a gift, he contributed to mutilating the saints. Hence, he argued that they are complete in every particle. But his argument goes further than practical concerns about the means by which he has acquired holy stuff. His position is Christological and soteriological. The wholeness of the saints lies in the fullness of Christ, who is whole and perfect because living, even in division and death. By the high Middle Ages, concern to remove any implication of partition or pollution from relics seems to have underlain the way both texts and objects represented the saints. Authors of saints' lives frequently spoke of the bodies and bones of holy people as jewels in life as well as in death. Walter Daniel wrote that Aelred of Rivaux glowed like the sun while still a baby. In death, his flesh was, quote, clearer than glass, whiter than snow, shining like a carbuncle, unquote. James of Vitry reported that the holy woman, Mary of Wanyi, appeared to him in a dream after her death, quote, as if transformed into a very brilliant, precious stone, unquote. The late 13th century visionary, Mechthild of Magdeburg, saw in a vision the body of St. John in heaven, whole in every detail and unchangeable like a crystal, but apparently asleep, awaiting the general resurrection. In such accounts, bodies reflect graphically and exactly the virtues of persons. Virginity or ascetic denial is manifested as literally pure flesh, like clear crystal. Indeed, in many of the descriptions, body and separated soul and saint fuse. On earth and in heaven, both before and after the coming resurrection, holy bodies are living but hardened against the change of corruption. Hence, stones and metals were a telling analogy to such bodies, for minerals were understood by medieval theorists to be decay-resistant but alive or quasi-alive, growing organically in the earth and manifesting powers of attraction and repulsion, rather like desire. In the later Middle Ages, hagiographers and advocates for the canonization of holy people increasingly made the claim that their bodies or body parts, in fact, defied corruption. The tongue of St. Anthony of Padua was alleged to remain incorrupt for hundreds of years after his death. The hand of the 4th century martyr St. Quentin, separated from his body, as was his cranium, when the relics were translated in 1228, is still displayed today with its flesh intact. More than half of the universally venerated saints from the period between 1400 and 1900, and all the female saints, are said to have incorrupt bodies or to demonstrate odd phenomena that imply non-decay. Hagiographical accounts often insisted in other ways on the life of relics. For example, Mary of Wanyi's hagiographer, Thomas of Cantemprey, mentioned this on Monday, claimed that her hair wrought cures after her death and on one occasion came alive for an hour. Two centuries later, a relic of the true cross, possessed by the holy woman Jane Mary of Malier, spilled fresh blood as if alive when cut in two, and each part with the blood it produced was then put in a separate reliquary. 
The point of 14th century accounts of blood relics that liquefied was to demonstrate that the blood was living because red and fluid, not dried. Reliquaries made the same argument. From the central Middle Ages on, these containers both displayed the stuff holy bodies had become in death and lifted that stuff to eternal life by cloaking it in incorruptible metal and gems. This reliquary of Thomas Beckett's blood, for example, substitutes a shimmering red stone there on the top. I'm sorry, I don't have a colored slide. Itself ingeniously constructed to look like blood. That's not, in fact, a ruby. It's a crystal with red foil underneath. So the jewel is made to look like a ruby, which itself is made to look like shimmering uh, blood. So it's constructed to be a reflection of the blood, which, although unseen, is inside the reliquary. The stone's shining redness makes clear the claim that what is inside is blood, liquid, glowing, alive. It is even possible to argue that reliquaries literalize James of Vitry's vision by transforming bones and dust into jewels and gold, alive with God. Or one might reverse the argument and suggest that Mechtil's vision of John's body is a textual version of a reliquary monstrance. Indeed, all bodies seem to become reliquaries in Mechtil's vision of last things. After the resurrection, we shall be, she says, quote, of human form, bearing within ourselves the godly flame of the soul, which will shine through our bodies as luminous gold shines through a clear crystal. Unquote. In Mechtil's poetic vision, we all become speaking reliquaries at the end of time. By the later Middle Ages, bodies lifted into incorruption by the gorgeousness of reliquaries were often parts. The reliquary of John the Baptist shown here is clearly a head, but it is golden and with hair, not a skull. Art historians suggest that it perhaps contained a tooth of the saint. Hence, the reliquary presents body as not decayed, although it is divided. Moreover, if it did contain a tooth or small bone particle, and of course there's nothing inside it now, as is often the case with, with reliquaries, but if it did contain a tooth or small bone particle, the form of the container makes that particle into a far larger body part. Even in containers where the fragment within is visible, it is often presented not as a mere sliver or bit, but as a recognizable part, arm, foot, rib, etc., and such parts tend to be clothed, as 1 Corinthians 15.53 put it, in incorruption. For example, the bone inside the Prague reliquary, later attributed to St. George, that's the one here on your left, the, the Prague uh, reliquary, like the reliquary of St. Nicholas of Mira from Halberstadt, 13th century, uh, you can see there, the bone, which is absolutely displayed uh, behind uh, the crystal. The bone in both these reliquaries is clearly visible, yet is displayed to the viewer garbed for heaven. This is a slightly earlier reliquary. Uh, the reliquary of St. Basil closed the hand in a liturgical glove, a sign of the saint's position as bishop. Lines in the lower part imitate the wrinkles of material, And the hatching around the fingers suggests fabric or cured skin of a very fine glove. 
But the glove fits so tightly that the thumb at least appears to have a nail. We've got finger coverings on the end of these, but the thumb actually seems uh, to have a nail. So even visually, the image confuses us, conflating fabric covering, cured glove skin, and flesh, all of it silvered or gilded. We, the viewers, are not sure whether such relics are overclothed with glory or have become it. Thus, despite the anxiety about division suggested in early texts such as those of Jerome and Victricius, what is denied in body part reliquaries, uh, as in Thomas of Canterbury's account of Marion Wangi's hair, is not partition but decay. Indeed, by the later Middle Ages, the division attendant upon death is displayed, even in some ways celebrated. Although recent work has demonstrated that body part reliquaries do not necessarily contain the specific part they illustrate, they certainly call attention to parts qua parts. It is hard not to see the St. Basil reliquary, for example, as underlining armness, especially when we realize that such objects were used as arm substitutes or arm extenders to perform liturgical blessings. These aren't just reliquaries. They were used in processions and in rituals so that the hand, the blessing hand, would be up high. People could see over the crowd. So these are, these are prosthetic uh, arms uh, as well as uh, uh, reliquary holders, as well as relic holders. Reliquaries glorify and sublimate partition. What they deny is putrefaction. Indeed, medieval burial practices, like burial practices in most cultures, manifest a palpable anxiety about the corruption and slime immediately attendant upon death. Christians hid the putrefaction of bodies by reducing them to the hard stuff as quickly as possible, through boiling, for example, or through first burial in the ground before removal removal to a charnel house. The bones which were then displayed might be manifestly divided, but they appeared to be beyond decay. The holy bodies contained in reliquaries, like bones in the charnel house, were explicitly body, often explicitly body parts, but body removed as far as possible from the abhorrent change of corruption. It is worth noting that on the rare occasions when soft tissue was displayed as a relic, as for example in the tongue of St. Anthony of Padua, it was claimed to be hard and incorrupt. Theological texts suggest a similar concern with with and fear of putrefaction. I give two examples from many that might be adduced. The first is Guibert of Nogent's well-known De Pignoribus on re- concerning relics, an early 12th century treatise often said to be one of the first rationalist critiques of relics. At the heart of Guibert's argument, however, is not the critical sense of evidence 19th century historians attributed to him, but rather a concern to keep putrefaction at bay. It is for this reason that he categorically denies the possibility of any bodily or effluvial relics of Christ. The blood and water shed from Christ's side at the crucifixion were not absorbed by the earth, asserts Guibert, because if they had been, they would face decay there. Any particle of Christ that remained behind, even his baby teeth, would eventually perish. Yet God cannot decay. Therefore, nothing of Christ can be left behind. 
The words of Psalm 1510 promise, quote, he will not give his Holy One to see corruption, unquote. And this text is quoted hundreds and hundreds of times in, in these medieval discussions. Kibar argued, quote, we are promised that he will reform the body of our lowness made like to the body of his glory. How will he raise the despicableness of human corruption to conformity to his glory if he left behind a part of his body without any rational cause and showed himself powerless to take up again something that was of himself, unquote. A stark fear of the bodily division he finds imaged in body parts lurks behind Guibert's strident opposition to relics of Christ. Any partition seems to him a prelude to decay and dissolution. His is not a rationalist critique of relics as inauthentic or fraudulent, but a statement, God redeems matter from corruption. My second example is a curious quadlibital text from the 14th century that suggests the extent to which even learned theologians and natural philosophers felt it necessary to go to protect the holy matter of the saints from the contamination of decay. Raising the question whether one can adore a dead body, that is a relic, Henry of Ghent argued that there were four kinds of adoration. Propter se, per se, propter aliud, and per accidens, because of itself, through itself, on account of something else, and per accidens. Uh, and adoration per accidens means because of something other than what the object is intrinsically. So adoration per accidens can be, and then we have another sort of scholastic breakdown, uh, adoration per accidens can be because of what the thing signifies, as in the water of baptism, because of what it imitates or is like, as in images, because of contact, as in the case of contact relics, because of descent, as in the case of dead bodies of the saints coming from living bodies, and by what Henry calls connaturality. It's this last type, connaturality, that seems odd to us, because by it Henry means that worms from the cadavers of the saints will have little bits of the saints' matter inside, and these as live bits can be adored. Later scholastics taking this up, uh, not too surprisingly, leave out the worms. <laughs> but what's striking for my purposes is that Henry is not bothered by partition, per se, but by decay. It is decay that this odd argument explains away. Bits of the saints are still in some sense the matter of the saints as long as they can be seen to be alive even in the bodies of the worms that eat them. The argument between Henry and his interlocutors is, to be sure, the sort of bizarre and hypothetical reasoning favored by scholastics. As such, it is hardly a guide to common assumptions. Nonetheless, like Gieber's argument about the relic of Christ's baby tooth, Henry's quadlibit is an example of the way concern for both confronting and denying decay continued to crop up in medieval discussion. The more fragmentation and corruption were repressed, sublimated, or explained away, the more they intruded into technical, theological, and devotional discourse. Nor is this surprising. For behind texts such as Henry's and Guibert's and objects such as the St. Basil reliquary lay a gigantic oxymoron. Decay was feared, repressed, denied. Partition was sublimated. Yet fragmentation was central to the Christian cult of holy matter. 
However much Christians might disclaim or obfuscate the disintegration brought by putrefaction and partition, they were busy dividing bodies for religious purposes. Over the course of the early Middle Ages, actual and metaphorical partition of holy objects became central to piety. Moving and dividing bodies had been problematic in the early church. The Romans had legislated against burying within city walls, against moving, fragmenting, or selling bodies, and the earliest Christian sermons repeated such prohibitions. But the premier Christian heroes and heroines, the martyrs, were divided in the arena and torn apart by wild beasts. Thus Jerome, Victricius, and others of the fathers had perforce to argue for a kind of heavenly wholeness in bodies violated by persecutors. And the idea of wholeness in partition caught on. By the high Middle Ages, holy matter of all sorts was enthusiastically divided. Pieces of the true cross were spread across Europe. The faithful sat by the beds of dying holy people, hoping to get a fragment of the body as soon as the bones were prepared for distribution. After Clara of Assisi died, they had to post guards to keep people uh, from coming in and trying to rip off um, pieces of her body from the beer. It's just one example. Monasteries created networks of affiliation by sending bits of their own precious relics to daughter houses as gifts, and religious authorities took bodies and body parts on procession around towns and fields in order to provide protection, mark out boundaries, or enhance fertility. Holy matter traveled and thereby spread its effects. We even find secular cases of bodily division and distribution in the Christian West. From the 10th century on, the aristocracy and royalty of Europe, and by the 14th century, the princes of the church as well, left instructions and wills to have their bodies divided after death and buried in widely scattered places in order not only to garner prayers from diverse ecclesiastical establishments, but also to spread their power throughout the area of their jurisdiction. Here, too, there was an assumption that matter carried presence. Paradoxically, then, matter's partability, its divisibility, became the key to its efficacy. We see the assumption that partition spreads present, operating in sinister ways in the case of anti-Jewish host desecration libels of the sort I was talking about uh, yesterday. Among the nastiest aspects of such libels are the repeated charges that Jews not only stab, but also divide the host and carry pieces from town to town. For example, in the anti-Jewish hysteria in the neighborhood of Berlin in 1510, the Jew Solomon of Spandau was accused of mishandling a host, which then miraculously sprang into three pieces, each marked with blood. Solomon was alleged, it's interesting, it's the host that decides to divide itself. Solomon is incapable of dividing it, even though he keeps on trying uh, to, to chop it up. Solomon was alleged to have subsequently sent the pieces to the towns of Brandenburg and Stendhal for further abuse. Such charges reflect not only an anti-Jewish paranoia that aided Christians in spreading persecution from one region to another, but also a conviction that holy matter is whole in every part. Manifesting itself as powerful and alive by bleeding, each piece of the wafer is understood to be the whole Christ who is executed again in every fragment. I argued earlier in this lecture that the oxymoron behind relic cult, the need that is both to use and to sublimate or even in some cases to resist fragmentation, was mirrored in reliquaries. Relic containers increasingly underlined and exhibited holy bodies as parts. 
It is important to note, however, that the objects themselves utilized and sublimated fragmentation in another way. The more containers stressed part as part by making parts visible as such, the more they collected large numbers of them, which they displayed as collections. So here we have uh, a large uh, altar of reliquary bust from the 14th century. This is clearly a collection. Uh, it's a collection of reliquary containers, each one of which uh, has relics inside. And here we have a reliquary triptych, which you can see in all the little windows in the middle. You're displaying your, your holy pieces, so you're collecting them together while at the same time uh, you're making them visible. 12th century reliquaries already implied community by their very shape as churches. And here we have examples of two 12th century reliquary caskets or um, chesses where, where actually you can see the shape of the church, which implies that the pieces inside are sort of gathered into a hole. I mean, they're actually there in a church, but such containers do not make the pieces visible the way something like uh, this does. Later reliquary altars and triptychs insist visually that what is assembled is bits, in such displays, the partition body parts reliquaries asserted was transcended not only in the precious containers that spoke of resistance to change by gilding uh, the bones, but also in the propensity of the faithful to collect parts and exhibit them as gathered into holes. Reliquaries were not, however, the only devotional objects that simultaneously denied the partition they represented and indeed enacted. I turn now to another illustration of the complexity of the notion of holy pieces, the tendency to fragment and quantify the body of Christ itself. The account of the crucifixion in the Gospel of John stresses that Christ's body was not broken. Even his cloak remained undivided. Quote, then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first thief and of the other that was crucified with him. But after they were come to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled. You shall not break a bone of him. Unquote. But by the 15th century in Europe, the poetry and iconography of the devotion known as the five wounds fragmented Christ rhetorically and visually. Veneration of his wounds, two in the hands, two in the feet, one in the side, was articulated not only in prayers to the parts of Jesus addressed one after another, but also in paintings and woodcuts. So here we have um, two well-known examples. Uh, here we have the, the uh, so-called Arma Christi, the, the instruments of the passion, but with the Christ's five parts, two hands, two feet, and the heart with the wound in the side. And here we have um, a devotional woodcut from England, uh, late 15th century with, again, the two hands, the two feet, uh, and the wound in the side in the middle. Here we have a 16th century Flemish version where you can very clearly see the body's absent, but the parts, it, uh, the parts are the whole. 
And here, very interestingly, of course, we've got the, we've got the hands and the feet and the side wound, but he, here we actually have the side wound and the two hand wounds, but the feet have disappeared, and the five wounds now have all become the side wound. So it's a very, very complicated kind of synecdoche, so that the side wound has become the other wounds, the five wounds, and the whole thing. Clearly, a stand in some way uh, for the body of Christ. In such iconography, the crucified figure disappears to be replaced by hands, feet, and heart standing alone. Although the pieces are gathered by various framing devices into a whole, and this is important. We don't just have pieces as pieces. There is a way you see visually here, interestingly enough, the crown of thorns, which is one of the instruments of the, of the passion, visually collects the parts into a whole. You see how it, it's functioning as a frame. And here clearly, of course, the fact that it's presented as a shield with the, with the, um, with the five wounds on it. Once again, we have a framing which is collecting. So it's a little bit like the reliquaries. We've got the parts emphasized as parts, but here actually we visually uh, have a way in which they're, in which they're pulled together uh, in a frame. But despite the fact that the pieces are gathered uh, by various framing devices uh, into a whole, the visual presentation also stresses parts as parts. In this devotion, the wound in Christ's side acquired special prominence. Sometimes it was turned horizontally, as if it were a mouth. And this presentation tended to echo the theme of guilt and divine anger I talked about Monday when I discussed the polemic surrounding the Vilsnack host. For example, in this page from the devotional miscellany found in uh, British Additional Manuscript 37049, the wound appears to speak to sinners the very reproach that is inscribed around it. Christ displays the side wound with one hand. He's displaying his side wound. He's got his other wounds. And then the, the blood from his hand is dripping onto the heart onto which the five wounds are transferred. So quite literally, you see, the heart is becoming the whole person because the wounds of the body are being transferred onto it. Um, and the wound, really, you see, it's just like a little mouth opening. And it, what it is speaking is reproach. Um, I mean, what we have here is a prayer which says, Oh, man, unkind, have in mind my pains smart. And it goes right on. Behold and see, you're responsible you did this to me. And then in the text, right around the wound, we have this uh, is for veneration, the holy wound, uh, which Christ, in Christ, which was, in which Christ was wounded, in which Christ suffered for our redemption. So this is, this is speaking to those who view it, um, their guilt. Sometimes the wound. Sometimes the wound was depicted vertically in a presentation that has reminded a number of modern critics of a vagina. Nor is there reason to think this is just a modern projection. Medieval texts speak of entering into Christ's side as if into a womb and thus make the female gendering clear. The point is more complicated than is sometimes understood. Explicitly female images of Jesus in the Middle Ages stress gestating, birthing and lactating, not sexual union. Nestling within is usually an image of conception or reconception, 
When apostrophized, the breast of Jesus are explicitly identified with food, not erotic stimulation. For example, the topos of Mother Jesus used by the 14th century English anchorist Julian of Norwich, a medieval figure on whom there's been very extensive modern commentary, is a locus for discussing creation. The blood Christ shed on the cross is analogous to the blood of birthing. And this birthing paradoxically precedes conception in the way Julian talks about it. So the birthing comes before the being contained within. To Julian, Christ is mother in feeding, but above all in giving the very matter of existence to the child. Salvation is resting within. We may read this resting within as sexual union, but in Julian's own verbs and adjectives, mothering denotes and connotes giving life. Moreover, direct visual identification of the side wound with the vagina is most obvious in objects such as birthing girdles that use it as an amulet against difficult childbirth. Such girdles, bearing descriptions of the side wound, were bound onto the laboring mother in the hope that one gaping slit would aid another in opening. And this is an example of a birthing girdle from England. It's one of only four uh, that survive. This girdle is a very narrow 10-centimeter scroll sewn together from four pieces of vellum. It features a large cross with the arm of Christi and a big side wound here with the other. I don't know because I guess my pointer's not really working. But anyway, you can see the side wound, obviously, uh, and the hands and the little blood drops uh, coming down from the side wound. And it's quite worn from use. This clearly was, was bound on a number uh, of laboring women. The age-old principle of similia similibus, that is that like controls like, is what's at work here. Moreover, the wound sometimes served as a measure of the length of Christ. And this example from 1490, now in the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., and brilliantly analyzed recently by David Arriford, the wound contains a little cross with the names of the four evangelists. The formula on either side say, on the left, this is the length and width of Christ's wound, which was pierced in his side on the cross. Whoever kisses this wound with remorse and sorrow, also with devotion, will have as often as he does this seven years' indulgence from Pope Innocent. And on the right, this little cross standing in Christ's wound measured 40 times makes the length of Christ in his humanity. Whoever kisses it with devotion shall be protected from sudden death or misfortune. Here is in the birthing girdle. The length of Christ is apotropaic. It's a protective amulet against disaster. The cross in the wound serves not only as an indication of how many prayers and devotions can earn a given number of indulgences, but also as a kind of protective amulet. The wound has become Christ, part is whole. And you can see here that the wound visually substitutes for Christ's body. The wound forms the body of the little man who's depicted here, and the cross within measures uh, Christ's body. Just as people understood themselves to be giving themselves to God when they donated a length of wick or a weight of candle wax equivalent to their own measures, so they felt in contact with the actual body of Christ when they prayed according to or actually kissed an image of the wound that exactly measured his stature. 
It is significant that in the Washington, D.C. woodcut, devotees are told not just to revere, but also to kiss the wound. And I give here an example. I'm sorry it's not a better slide, but you certainly can see the point. This is a similar wound image in which the central portion, that is the wound part, is completely abraded by such kissing. So here we actually have a manuscript page where you can see in the middle they've kissed away uh, the central part. They've kissed away uh, the womb. These depictions of the, uh, those depictions of the side wound that appear to us to be like vaginas are most often in their medieval visual context explicitly connected with birthing or with the obtaining of indulgences. Nonetheless, there is reason to think that medieval authors, craftspeople, and worshipers did see the erotic and fetishizing overtones of such devotions. Certain conservative theologians were made uncomfortable by what they felt to be an odd interest in the interior of the virgin's body. And there are rare surviving examples, which must be only a fraction of what once existed, of objects that appear to mock both holy wound piety and relic devotion, and thereby suggest that the sexual overtones were apparent to contemporaries. A little lead badge now in the Cluny Museum in Paris, one other example from Rotterdam is known, shows three penises carrying a vagina in procession, just as reliquaries of holy arms, feet, and ribs were carried. I mean, those are unmistakable. You see the testicles with the little tails. You see the, uh, you see the penises with the little skin, foreskin on the top. And you see them carrying uh, the vagina. The little badge is certainly body. We cannot, however, be sure that it was intended to be a parody of contemporary piety because we know nothing about its reception. No images survive of people wearing such badges and parody like caricature and satire are notoriously difficult for one culture to identify and recognize in another. But the visual parallels between the Clooney badge and such images as the Bohan Book of Hours or the Hours of Bonn of Luxembourg are striking. And here again, I mean, I apologize, it's not a better image, but you have the... Um, the, the beautiful one I showed you before, the Hours of, of Bonn of Luxembourg. But then on the right, in the Bohan uh, Book of Hours, you see very clearly, I mean, we have Christ hanging on the cross. In the middle section, we have Christ attached to the column of the flagellation. And in the bottom section, we have angels raising the wound from the sepulcher. The wound is clearly here standing in uh, for Christ. And the parallel between what the little penises are carrying and what the angels are carrying here visually uh, is absolutely uh, unmistakable. The wound lifted up by the angels bears a striking resemblance to the little vagina borne by penises in the badge at Clooney. Moreover, at least 10 examples survive of badges in which vaginas are dressed as female pilgrims and a few in which both penis and vagina are depicted as going on pilgrimage. A fablio such as Du Prestre Crucifier, analyzed by Howard Bloch, draws an explicit parallel between a tumescent priest lover and the corpus of Christ on the cross. Yet another fablio recounts the story of three male pilgrims who find a penis along the pilgrimage route and are puzzled about what to do until a clever abbess claims to identify it as the abbey's stolen door knocker. <laughs> 
Such images clearly mock pilgrims and priests, as does a good deal of late medieval literature, both moralizing and otherwise. Parodying those who engage in religious behavior, cynically or profanely, is not, of course, as radical or transgressive as mocking a holy object itself. It's not the same thing. Nonetheless, the existence of such body descriptions of clerics, nuns, and pilgrims of both sexes suggests that it was quite possible for medieval devotees and critics to see the erotic overtones of devotional objects. We know, moreover, that secular and religious poetry tended to use the enumeration of body parts to underline devotion. A manuscript from 1320 includes a long poem in seven sections addressed to the members of Christ, feet, knees, hands, side, breast, heart, and face. Troubadours hymned their ladies and Virgin Mary, lady above all others, in songs that counted their parts, forehead, lips, neck, breast, etc., dwelling on each. They apparently saw nothing sacrilegious or even peculiar in doing so. But we sometimes find hints in fablio and romances that authors were aware of how shocking or entertaining it might be to draw parallels between the body parts of lovers and those of saints. The Jewish poet Isaac Hagorni, for example, produced a parodic last will and testament in which his body was bequeathed to friends and former lovers. Isaac makes an analogy to Christian relic cult explicit and thus indicates that there was a general cultural awareness of and amusement at the parallel between literal and metaphorical secular and religious fetishizing of body parts. A famous passage in the 12th, 13th century Romance of the Rose makes the parallel even clearer. When the author finally reaches the point in his long story at which the lover has sexual intercourse with his rose, an allegorical figure that signifies both the lady and the female genitals, he speaks of uncovering the vagina as revealing the relics. Whether the language is a parody intended to shock or amuse, we can never be sure. But the analogy to Christian devotion is explicit, not not implicit. In a manuscript illumination of the scene, discussed by Michael Camille, the lover's sword penetrates those relics which are located between the lady's legs. But the legs have become the pillars of a temple. Her unveiling and sexual initiation is explicitly rendered as a tearing of the temple curtain and entry into the tabernacle. It is impossible not to think that the author, like the manuscript illuminator who illustrates the scene, notes and uses the oddness of his religion. Similarly, it is difficult not to think that those who made and wore badges, such as the one now in the Clooney Museum, saw the humor as well as the possible blasphemy in certain lush and graphic depictions of Christ's side wound and then the devotional frenzy that led to passionate kissing of it. The parallel of little badges of the little badge of penises and vagina with images such as the Washington, D.C. woodcut and the Bohan Book of Hours not only raises questions about reception, it also underlines my general argument. For the parallel is incomplete. Images of the side wound go more explicitly toward visual synecdoche than does the badge. We may debate the extent to which the body badge reduces women to vaginas, or men to penises, but there's no question that depictions of wound devotion make the side wound the whole body. What angels in the Bohan Book of Hours raise on high when Christ rises from the sepulcher is the side wound. 
no ambiguity here. In late medieval devotion, part is whole. In closing, then, I turn from side wound devotion to the wider context of this kind of synecdochal seeing. Much of the oddness of such piety was theorized in what theologians called the doctrine of concomitance, which argued that with Christ, part is whole. Concomitance was worked out in the 11th century in the context of a controversy over the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Those theologians who emerged on the winning side in this conflict charged that some of their opponents held a heresy these theologians labeled stercoranism from Stercus uh, excrement. It's hard to find anybody who really held this, but those who uh, opposed others, it was one of those kinds of things that you accused other people of. Its proponents supposedly argued that if the bread and wine really became flesh and blood at the consecration, Christ would then be macerated and crushed, even digested by believers, or multiplied into a mountain of matter by the celebration of countless masses. Theologians who supported real presence countered such interpretation by explaining that Christ is totally present in every mass and in every particle of the fragmented host. Hence, if each part is the whole Christ, he is not damaged, divided, or chewed. Such theological use of synecdoche had broad implications, both theoretical and practical. As far as the theology of the mass was concerned, concomitance theory meant that Christ could bilocate. Eternally present at the right hand of the Father in resurrected glory, Christ was also present on the altar at every celebration of the Eucharist. No matter how many services were sung or consecration performed, there was only one sacrifice offered to God for humankind, and it was offered simultaneously on earth and in heaven. Concomitance theory also had practical application. In the 13th century, when the clergy moved to deny the communion cup to the laity, largely because of fear that the devout would spill it in their eagerness for it, the doctrine was used to justify the withdrawal of the cup. By the 15th century, when the followers of Jan Hus in Bohemia made a demand for the return of the lay chalice, their rallying cry, miracles of the host were said to justify the doctrine of concomitance almost as often as they were said to demonstrate transubstantiation. The theologian Johannes von Paltz, for example, argued that the supposed host miracle at Sternberg produced, was produced by God both in order to st- show Jews and Christian doubters that Christ was really present in the consecrated wafer and in order to refute Bohemian, that is, Hussite claims to the cop. The Hussites were wrong to demand the chalice, Paltz argued, because every Christian already has the blood in the wafer. To demand communion in both kinds is to hold a mistaken Eucharistic theology, one which denies concomitance. Concomitance doctrine was also employed in debates over relics. In the 13th century, one Gerhard of Cologne was asked by the abbot of the monastery of Weingarten to defend its venerable relic of the blood of Christ against the criticism made by theologians such as Aquinas, talked about this on Monday, that effluvial relics were impossible because all of Christ's blood had ascended into heaven. Gerhard wrote, quote, just as he, that is Christ, could make his subtle and glorified body touchable and visible to his disciples, so he could not do without one and the same blood in heaven and yet left it behind as a comfort for his believers here on earth. 
Cannot one and the same all-powerful Savior in one and the same moment be changed into the sacrament in the hands of a thousand priests, really here present and undivided, and yet not be absent there in heaven? In heaven. Unquote. Concomitance theory is used here somewhat torturously to defend the bilocation or perhaps even the trilocation of the blood of Christ. If all Christ is in every particle, then Christ's blood can be totally in heaven, glorified, that is almost immaterial, and yet present on earth, both in the Eucharist and in the palpable drops, seeable, touchable, even drinkable of the vine garden relic. Concomitance theory was even used in anti-Jewish propaganda. The published account of the fact-finding commission concerning the host libel in the Berlin area in 1510 stressed that the Jew Solomon, quote, pierced and stabbed the host many times but could not divide it, unquote. The host was then reported to have divided itself into three pieces, as if at the consecration with bleeding along the cracks. Solomon was said to have sent two fragments to friends in other towns before attacking the remaining particle again. As I mentioned earlier, the language of the report makes it clear that the host took it upon itself to divide. Thus, however counterintuitive the claim, division is here taken to be proof of indestructibility. Bleeding is not only protest against violation, but proof of continuing life as well. The report also suggests that the distribution of pieces throughout the Mark Brandenburg was perpetrated by the Jews in order to render Christ liable to further abuse. The abuse, although heinous, was forever ineffective because host fragments, quote, although drowned, burnt, and in other ways persecuted, cannot be destroyed, unquote. In such propaganda, the idea that part is whole and that life and power perdure not only beyond but by means of division becomes the basis for fantasies about Jewish conspiracy. It is because the bits remain Christ that they are alleged to carry with them the possibility of continued but forever unsuccessful Jewish attack against them. Hence, they also continue and multiply the possibility of Christian attacks against Jews. As employed by Gerhard of Cologne or by the commissioners in the 1510 persecution, concomitance doctrine led to remarkably convoluted argumentation. Many parts are all one part, and each part is the whole. The blood of Christ can simultaneously be present in a vial at Weingarten, on a miraculous host at Vilsnack, and pleading for sinners before the throne of heaven. A consecrated wafer, such as the one supposedly attacked at Spandau, might choose to fragment itself in order to manifest its wholeness. The cultural practices I have discussed, relic partition and distribution, host desecration charges, partible burial of kings and cardinals as well as saints, the fragmentation of Christ's body into five wounds in poetry and visual presentation, all suggest that such thinking was more than a theological doctrine. Concomitance was a habit of mind. The habit of concomitant thinking was deeply embedded in medieval assumptions about what the material is. Because it was understood to be that which changes, matter was threat and opportunity. A threat because it decays, an opportunity because change is manifestation of the new. Matter is the place where what was seems to depart, yet it is also the place where life can be born. Astonishing things can erupt in it. It can even renew itself or return from decay to life in resurrection miracles or resurrection of, of healing of lost body parts. 
The assumption that part is whole is closely connected to this understanding of the material. For concomitance is, in a sense, a way of defeating the threat of matter while making explicable, even profiting from, the occasion it provides for new life. Concomitant thinking assumes that vision does not destroy what was. Partition does not kill. Distribution does not dissolve identity. So identity wholeness, isness continues through partition, and indeed the act of partition can be that which produces new life, which is not just continuity, but, uh, but the flowering uh, of the living, which contradicts the decay which in other ways partition uh, seems to signal. The cardinal or king whose head is in one church while his bones are in another is the same cardinal or king present in two places. Part is not inert. It is potentially alive as well as potentially whole. Hence partition and distribution can proceed for each part carries the fullness of power. When people behaved as if wall paintings were animate or host bled, just as when they theorized that Christ or the saint resided in every fragment of itself, they were, so to speak, performing the habit of concomitance. I have not intended to imply that theories cause attitudes, or conversely, that behaviors are simply rationalized or reflected in theories. Nor am I suggesting that all medieval Christians adhered to one understanding. In fact, as I've tried to show today and Monday and yesterday, they disagreed widely about what I'm calling Christian materiality, about relics and contact relics, about Eucharistic theory and host miracles, about visions and images. Moreover, I am not maintaining that all people behaved in similar ways toward religious objects. Lollards and Hussites, for example, represent popular movements that rejected certain material objects to which other groups enthusiastically adhered. Nonetheless, I do suggest that a wide variety of people expressed in word, ritual, and daily life the attitudes I've explored in this lecture and the one on Monday. I'm also suggesting that at the heart of such attitudes lay a paradox. If human beings are to gain access to and express ultimate significance, whether religious or moral, it must be done through matter. And matter presents to those who live in it the fundamental problem of how we can find wholeness in material stuff that is, by definition, that which decays and divides. Thank you. to take questions. So thinking about decay, I have a question. Did you um, find many disputes in your research? Like who arbitrates whether or not this part has not decayed? I mean, is the bishop coming in and saying, oh yeah, that's not decayed? And you ever have any like peasantry or saying, oh no, it smells awful? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's actually a very good question. Um, Increasingly, in the period that I'm talking about, canonization is being taken over by the papacy. Uh, one moves by the 15th century. It's necessary to present a complicated dossier before somebody can be declared to be a saint. Only at that point can the relics be translated and treated as if they are, are um, 
are holy, uh, are the bodies of, of holy people. And one of the, uh, it's actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting that, and, and important that you ask this because over the course of the period that I'm talking about, particularly as one moves into the 15th century, there is a tendency to scientize this. And so you actually, you have not just lawyers, but you have um, natural philosophers coming and you have to testify whether or not something appears to be incorrupt. Um, the bodies of, of holy women are looked at. I mean, Catherine of Siena's body was looked at. She supposedly had invisible stigmata. People looked to see. Uh, as a matter of fact, they, you know, they did it. Uh, they did it much later when they looked again at her body to see. It's supposed to be invisible, but is the is the skin a little bit clearer or something there? Um, Katie Park has written a very important book recently about uh, the origins of autopsy, lying in the procedures carried out on the body of holy women to find out whether, um, and I'm afraid some of this does get sort of bizarre, but um, for example, if it's claimed that you're an ascetic and you're living without eating, they actually opened up the body to see whether there was any um, decayed matter in the intestinal tract that would suggest that, in fact, the person had been eating. Um, Stigmata were certainly examined by doctors. Uh, Claims of virginity were um, falsified or verified uh, by examination of of bodies. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, by the 15th century. Definitely by the 15th century. Yeah. It's, It's interesting because many of these claims, I mean, you know, we tend to think this is this is part of sort of what I was talking about on Monday when I was talking about the fact that things are more complicated as we move toward the Reformation than the story that we're sometimes told, because we've been told the story of sort of increasing interiorization. But oddly enough, many of these phenomena are treated as more, in our terms, spiritual in the 13th and 14th centuries than they are in the 15th century. So in the 13th and 14th century, for example, with stigmata, the early claims are, it's, it's not even really important to people whether the stigmata are visible or not. These are, these are spiritual signs. By the 15th century, if somebody's claimed to have stigmata, the doctors have to be brought in, people have to look at the wounds. Um, so it's a, it's a move in a funny kind of way towards the exterior as it's a move toward the, toward the scientific. I'm not claiming that the spiritual significance wasn't there, but it is interesting that, that what's visibly present in terms of marks on the body and of course, if you think about it, the same thing happens in same thing happens in witch persecutions. I mean, you move increasingly towards are there really the marks of incubi and succubi on the bodies? You're going to be sticking pins in the bodies. And earlier, it, the the problem is, do you wish evil to someone else? But we 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 get a kind of scientizing and physicalizing, a somatizing, a materializing, if you will, uh, of bodies in, in this way as we move into the 15th and 16th centuries. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. Why don't we move here like this? We could go here and then here and then over there. I'll, I'll try to keep track. Yeah. Beginning with uh, the central doctrine and mystery of Christianity, that is to say the notion of the incarnation or, or, or the struggle to understand uh, the means by which the Spirit of God was fully incarnated in Jesus. Would you say that these are further explorations of that essential doctrine, or, or probings of it, perhaps? 
Is there a connection between that central doctrine and what you've been talking about? Yeah, of course there is, and um, this is a very good question. And indeed, people who've noticed the kind of thing that I'm talking about have I've often argued that it is simply a working out of the doctrine of the incarnation. Jean-Claude Schmidt has has in a very good good essay. Uh, actually argued this. Um, the only thing I would want to say in addition it, well, is two things. One is, if it's only a working out of the logic of the incarnation, one wonders why it took so long to get to some of these positions. In other words, there still have to be more, more local explanations for why um, the devotion is very different in the 14th and 15th centuries from what it's like in the 7th or the 9th or the 11th or the, of the 12th. It's actually, we were talking a little bit about this um, this yesterday. And the second thing I would say is that I think we've probably, as medievalists, put too much emphasis on the incarnation recently, at least in the sense of the emphasis on the devotion to the humanity of Christ. It's not that this is not terribly important in late medieval devotion, but we've put so much emphasis on it that I think we've forgotten about the, the other aspects of the importance of the material, not only in the Christian tradition, but also in the later Middle Ages. I, I mean, I mentioned at the end on Monday that the doctrine of creation is really much more important to these people than you would think if you read what modern scholars have to say. I mean, think of all the hexameral literature, all the commentaries on the six days of creation. It's a very important locus uh, for thinking about the material. All those discussions I was working on when I was working on the resurrection of the body. Again, that's about the privileging, the making important, the making of, of the, the body as the very locus of salvation, which is not, it's not just the incarnation, but is the, the, the every element of creation. And you even have people debating you know, how much of creation is going to be in heaven, um, which, is, which is a debate about the significance of the, of the material. So yes, I think absolutely the doctrine of the, of the incarnation and the humanity of Christ is crucial. And there's no question that the humanity of Christ becomes so emphasized by the later Middle Ages that some people would say, and possibly rightly, that the divinity is sometimes forgotten. So there's no question that this is important. But at the same time, I think we may have focused so much on that that we've forgotten about the larger context uh, both of creation and of resurrection, and the way in which many of these debates about material objects and about relics were put by the theologians, I mean, not in the context of the incarnation, uh, at least not only in the context of the incarnation, but in the context of creation, because if God can create, God can recreate. And so the, the, the creation of matter itself was connected to the possibility of the recreation of matter in resurrection. So I think that that's, a, that that's also a, a, a dimension. Now, that, doesn't answer, that still doesn't answer the why question. I mean, I still haven't explained why all these things become more important in the 14th and 15th centuries. That's a very complicated question. But I think it isn't just the incarnation, although the incarnation is crucial. That's fine. And then I know this, you had a question, too. Yes. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, I, I have a question. I know you recognize the diversity of beliefs over Europe, but um, I know in a later period in the Greek Orthodox, it was a Greek Orthodox belief that if you unearthed a body and it hadn't decayed, that was a sign of sin of that person. So what, what, um, 
what would happen if things were being preserved that shouldn't have been preserved? Like if you had to dig up your dad and, and he hadn't decayed, would you see him as a saint of some kind? Would that be a... It's, a, it's an excellent question um, because, I mean, leaving, leaving aside the, the, the Greek Orthodox tradition about which I don't know as much as I should, but just thinking in the Western tradition, um, there, there really are two, if you will, discourses about incorruptibles. Uh, and one of them is that incorruptibility is a sign of sanctity. Um, the church never accepts this. Stricto sensu. And when you have um, the, the rules for canonization, which are sort of elaborated in the 17th century, there's, uh, it, it's clearly stated that incorruptibility is not itself a sign of sanctity. But in terms of popular piety, I mean, there was a, there was a case, I don't know, in the middle of the, of the 20th century for when some workmen were excavating near the Castel San Angelo in Rome and they found uh, an incorrupt body and the populace, you know, began to carry on. This must be a saint. It must be this little girl saint. And it, must, and it was very difficult for the church to get it under control. So one of the discourses clearly is that incorruptibility is a sign of sanctity, even though that's never uh, been officially approved by the church. But the other discourse is that uh, the earth will refuse to accept the bodies of the evil. So within, particularly within popular religiosity, there is, is no question that incorruptibility can be a sign of being possessed in some way by the devil or being evil. And I think these two, um, these two ways of looking at the material and at decay are present in the Western tradition, uh, and they're you know they're absolutely there, and they run through. Both of them suggest that decay is in a way a problem; that decay is a fundamental trigger for thinking about things. But it's not true that there's simply one uh, one set of assumptions. You're right, and they're they're contradictory. They're both there. And there was a, there was a question here. You had a question, and then there are two here. Yeah. So which was here? Right, this gentleman, that gentleman right there, he's been waiting patiently, yeah. One of the things that, most, that was most interesting to me about your talk was how you looked at these forces in, in the late Middle Ages. And I know that there are just a lot of really complicated social forces at this time, like the increasing monetization, uh, the rise of the town, and the, the increase of both secular and religious jurisprudence. And one of the things that particularly stood out to me was the sort of association uh, the, the, the growing positive connotation of the words good and modern, that the idea of, of progress was starting to be seen as a good idea. And that seems to be, stand in stark contrast to the idea of preserving these, these material sacred objects uh, that seem to be testaments to the, to the, imperm to the permanence of, of saints, essentially. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak to sort of the convergence of these two different ideas and how they, how they met and how they... How they differed. I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Um, can you? Yeah, I can repeat it, or, yeah. or I mean, rephrase it. Um, it seems that there is this new idea about about progress and about uh, so the 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 rational ability of humans to to sort of. Order to divine will, like what, uh -huh. what came with scholasticism and, and Aquinas. Okay. Right. So there's this. It, it seems to me that there's this new idea that that progress can can 
bring about change mm -hmm. and that the, the sum total of human knowledge can increase over time. Mm -hmm. And that seems to, to go against the idea of preserving these, these, um, these sacred objects uh, that, that seem to be testaments to, to the unchanging aspect uh, of, of human existence. Okay, I, th I think I see what you mean. Um, what I would say is that um, being in matter, being material, is not either a modern or a non-modern problem. It's a human problem. We can't get away from it, no matter, at least we haven't been able to get away from it yet. Maybe in the year 3000, people can live forever. They will have transcended their materiality in some way, but we don't have any reason to think that we're going to be able to transcend the process of change in matter, and therefore matter is a problem. Um, and it's a problem that people tend to deal with in literature, they tend to deal with in religion, but they also, they also deal with it in science uh, and in, in natural philosophy. And what I would say is that there is, in the period I'm talking about, a really interesting convergence of the two things that you're talking about. Um, I don't think that, um, that questions about you know, how you preserve and how you preserve objects and this kind of thing are necessarily just old style. I think that what's being explored there are questions about the fundamental sort of location of people and of meaning in, in matter and in humanity. But one of the things that's very interesting is that uh, in this period, much of the most forward-looking, we would say, thinking, I mean, the people who really are exploring kind of the limits, if you will, of the rational are doing it exactly in the context of these kinds of questions. And that's one of, this is the kind of thing that, that Professor Gelber, among other people, uh, work on. But one of the fascinating things about the later Middle Ages is that it will be in the context of religious problems that you will get your... Um, uh, you will get the places where uh, you make progress in thinking about mechanics, about statics, about cosmology. Um, so it's exactly in the, I mean, people used to say, you know, scholasticism, how many angels can dance on the head of, of, of a pen. That can actually be a very important way of thinking about space. Um, maybe not Maybe not that. But, but there certainly were lots of discussions about the motions of angels. Um, and these kinds of questions. So around the sort of things uh, that I'm working on, and that's one of the things that fascinates me, it's exactly there that we have coming together what, what you're calling the new, the new rationality. And I agree that there are ways, there are new texts, there are new ways of proceeding, there are new ways of arguing uh, that are rational, what we think of as rational. And these, uh, these come to bear exactly in the kind of religious questions that I'm talking about. So the two, you know, the two are really, the two are coming together. It's not that one is forward-looking and the other is getting left behind. Not in this period. Yeah, that was so we have, question. Okay. We have. Yeah, they definitely, they come together in this sort of bizarre way. And uh, people have not given them as much um, attention as they should have exactly because there's been a tendency to, think that theological reasoning is only about 
sort of abstruse theological questions, and that if you're going to look at uh, questions like motion and fall and the nature of the planets um, and how um, how water vaporizes and these kinds of questions, you would have to be doing it someplace else. But in the Middle Ages, these are often done by people in the context of theological theological questions. So we have time for one final question, I think. You want to make the choice? Oh, that, that, oh, actually, there was somebody over here who had a hand up before, but if the hand's not up now and it's not an urgency, why? Oh, well, wait a minute. All right, you had your hand up before. They're sitting next to, uh, to Professor Brown, yeah? Okay. And uh, you can ask me afterwards. If... My question is that, that with the, looking at the, the images of um, the vagina, I mean, to me, it, it says that, that there's some value placed on the female body and female subjectivity or female sexuality, and... I would imagine that had some roots in the the pagan religions that anticipated, you know, Christianity coming. But I'm wondering, within the context of these images, what do you know about how, um, even related specifically to to these images, how if there was any direct connection, or if there was this, you know, divide um, between what people conceived of Jesus. Christ's wounds being and what the female body was conceived of. In the particular kind of visual images that I had up there, I'm afraid there's not much implication of valuing the female body, particularly not the erotic female body. It's rather the opposite. I mean, if three little penises are carrying off the vagina triumphantly, this is well, the penises may be valuing the vagina in one sense, but I don't think, from probably from a female point of view, this is exactly a, a valorizing of, of, of female sexuality. Although some people have tried to argue this, but that I don't think quite works. But I do think what you find in, in something like Julian of Norwich, which I know Professor Summit teaches and um, which, which many people read, um, and not only, not only Julian... There is a, there's a value of, of the female body, but it's female generativity much more than female sexuality, stricto sensu. Not that Julian doesn't understand that these are connected. And somebody like Hildegard of Bingen understands that they're connected, that there's a connection between sexuality and fertility. And one, one has to think about, I mean, this is a period in which fertility is not a problem, in, in the way in which it is for us, fertility is in a way a much more positive thing. Um, and so when you find people using the wound of Christ on a birthing girdle and you know, binding it around the female body to make, they hope, uh, a successful birthing, or what I talked about on Monday, I'm putting the image of a saint on the body of a woman struggling in childbirth and the wound is not opening. Um, there certainly is, a, there's a valuing and there certainly is a feminizing of the body of God. There's an understanding that that wound of Christ is related particularly to the female wound which is giving birth to the world, and uh, that, that image, I mean, I didn't talk about this, but this, it doubles back so that that birthing image is used then to talk about salvation. It is soteriological. The, the, the giving birth in blood is the saving of, of the world. Um, the saving, it's, the, it's creation, and it's the saving of creation in blood. And um, this, this um, 
this blood devotion that that I've been working on, I was working on in, in my last book, there, there definitely are female overtones to the understanding of blood. In certain ways, you can argue that the blood of Christ is often gendered female when it is positive and salvific and is often gendered male when it is accusatory and sacrificial and connected to injury. So these, these are complicated things, and the... The important thing about the imagery is it can be gendered in many different ways and can be bent and twisted and whatever. But there, in, certainly in the poetry and in the theology, there is a, a powerful reading of the, of, of the female and of birthing, but a less powerful reading of, um, in, in the theology or in the religious imagery of, of female sexuality. I think that's harder to get out of it.